Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Barry Pat, and um, uh, I have had the privilege of being one of the pastors here for, for several years, and um, I'm the care and discipleship pastor, and occasionally I get the great privilege of, of being able to speak to you guys. And so today we're going to take a little bit of a detour from our, from our Hebrews text. I'm kind of reserving that for Kevin and, and, and Lawson, and, um, and I want to take you on a, on a kind of a journey where, where I've been recently. And... Um, so, I don't know, some of you guys who probably uh, know me know that I have a love for the, there's a Matt Chandler statement that says, find the things that fuel your affections for Christ and saturate your life in them. And um, I'll tell you, that thought has served me well. And I will tell you that there are, um, there are many things that fuel my affections for Christ when I'm with you guys, I like, to, I like to ask what fuels your affections for Christ because sometimes I can be able to learn new things to, to, to fuel my affections. Um, and I don't know what it is, but there's um, one of the things that, that, that fuels my faith as much as anything is, is the music of Carrie Job. I don't know why, I, I love the music of Carrie Job. Um, something about her music just stirs my faith. And, um, you know, one of her more recent songs is what set me on the journey that ultimately led to this message this morning. You know, last, some of you realize, she, last year she released a song called The Blessing. And it's just a song that recites scriptural blessings. You know, in that stanza it says, may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you. He is with you. In the morning, in the evening, in your coming and your going, in your weeping and rejoicing, he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. And as this song, the, the phrase, he is for you, seems to be just sung repeatedly throughout this. And one day when I, I was, it came on, I was listening to it, and it got me thinking if I've ever really thought deeply about the truth that God is for me. It began to strike me that, that this may, is something that I have accepted and, and known most of my life, but I don't know if I have ever been just rightly humbled and awed at these words that the God of creation is for me. So this morning, I, I want you to join me on this journey that I've been on recently as I have studied and, and relished this amazing truth that God is for us. I think there's many passages in Scripture that, that communicate uh, this truth, but probably none more specifically than Romans 8.31. So this is where we're going to camp this morning. Um, and we will explore this thought by addressing three primary questions. One, what does it mean exactly that God is for us? And question two, if God is for us, then does it matter who is against us? And question three, is God for everyone? Oh, join me in prayer before we start. Father, Father, I, it, is, it is with great humility I even attempt to try to teach this most revered and remarkable text in Scripture. This, these are high words. 
These are powerful words. God, I pray that you would speak through me today, that we would see a new beauty. We have, we, we have read these words hundreds of times in our lives. God, would we see a different beauty? Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this text today? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So, to explore the meaning of what it means that God is for us, I want to start right here with 831, which really consists of two questions. And the two questions we see there is, what then shall we say to these things? And if God is for us, who can be against us? Some conversations say that really, the, the, we really should say that since God is for us, who can be against us? Both are true. And the first thing I think we need to note in this is that the second question is actually the answer to the first one. So question, what then shall we say to these things? And the answer is, since God is for us, or if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, this is a big statement. Now, and I think to understand it, the next logical question, if you look at this, you have to ask is, what are the these things that form the basis of the first question, right? And to answer that fully, I think the answer, in the, the full answer, is that everything in Romans that preceded this statement is what led up to this proclamation, this question. Paul begins his, his magnificent treatise on justification by, by faith alone in chapter one and verse 16 with a, with a bold statement that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then from there, all the way from, through chapter eight, verse 30, he then goes on to proclaim this gospel in stunning and persuasive detail. And then I think he gets down to in 28 is really where he, he goes back and he capsulizes everything that he's just taught in these last eight chapters. And in these three verses, it also provides the heart of the answer to our question today of what does it mean that God is for us? And look at those words again. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And I think if you look at this text, you realize that, that verse 28 is a true statement because of verse 29 and 30. So I want to spend time on these two verses today as I believe that they tell us what we need to know about what it means that God is for us. Look at 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, I think the first thing we see here is this verse destroys the very thought that, that God is for us because we're such swell people. What does it say? God chose us each eternally, when? Before our conception. Before our conception. 
before we were born. Ephesians 4.12 says, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He chose us to be holy and blameless in love before him. We don't merit God's favor. If God is for us, it is solely because for reasons that we can't comprehend, he set his favor on us before the foundations of the world and he predetermined that we would belong to him. And in this life, he begins that transformation process of making us holy and blameless, as Ephesians 4 says. And then upon our death, that one day we will stand fully, holy and blameless, and love before him. Because he is for us. I think what we begin to see here how, is that how God being for us is very different from how people are for us. Um, I don't know about you, but my experience is that human favor is usually pretty conditional. I think a good example of that is I, th I think, of, uh, think of insurance companies. I mean, they love, to, they love to make the claim that they're for you, don't they? Allstate, you're in good hands with Allstate. And State Farm is on your side. Of course, that's until you get in too many accidents or, or you fail to pay your premiums. And in that case, they'll send you a not-so-nice letter stating that State Farm is no longer by your side and all state has washed their hands of you. <laughs> but what a magnificent thought that God's being for us is not conditional on our behavior or our goodness but only his predetermination, which cannot change and will not be revoked. But yet the story gets better because scripture says that those he predestined, he also called. So if you sit here today as a follower of Christ, what you can know that it is solely because you responded to God's effectual call on you at some point in your life. We read in 2 Corinthians 3.14 where it says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Why? Because only through Christ is it taken away. So what we can be clear of here is that no one is born saved. Scripture is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says that no one chooses God. No one seeks him. We have all turned our own way. And whether you came to him as, a, as, as early as age five or six in your life, or maybe as recently as last week, if you have acknowledged your sinfulness before God and you have asked him to be your Lord and Savior, then you can know that it is only because, it, it, it is only because God is for you and God calls those he is for. But the news gets better. Because the text also says that those he called, he also what? He also justified. And of course, I think this phrase is, is where maybe we best understand what it means that God is for us. You can summarize God's character, and I think into three overarching traits. One that is he is holy, 
Two, that he is love. And three, that he is just. Because God is perfectly holy, that makes him utterly separate from us. And because he's perfectly just, he has no choice but to sentence us to the just punishment for our rebellion against him. But yet, because God is perfectly loving, unfathomably, he paid, he paid the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. God is for us. The guilty have been proclaimed not guilty. We have gone from from darkness to light, from death to life, from, from enemies of God and objects of his wrath to friends and children of God, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. We have been reconciled and made right with God. Stunning. There is no stronger evidence and there is no greater understanding of the meaning of God being forced than this. And yet that's not where our text ends, does it? Because it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh. And this is the, the thrilling end to which all the others were just a means. What does it mean that God is for you? It means that God predestined before time that one day, one day you would be wholly conformed to his image that you would stand in his presence and you would be like him. He would be your God and you would be part of his people. So to accomplish this, God called you to believe and repent. And then he applied the price that he paid for your salvation to your life so that he could then justly adopt you as his child. And now you have become part of this multitude of people from every tribe and nation who will spend eternity glorifying God by enjoying him forever. I mean, this truth is what's reflected in the thrilling picture we see in Revelations 21. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then just to cement the assurance of this, take note of the verb tense of verse 30. Did you notice it? Those he justified, he also Glorified. I don't think it's a typo that glorified is in the past tense. God is the Alpha and Omega. With him, the future is as certain as the past because it's all been predetermined by him. So this, my friends, is what it means that God is for you. 
And it's, that's the point, that's the context that Paul now leads into verse 31. He's, he's gone through this eight chapters and he's, he's settled with all these incredible things that how God demonstrates his foreness. And then he, he ends with his proclamation. What do we say to this? What can we possibly say to such an amazing truth other than if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if the eternal God is for us to such a degree, is, 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 is for us to such a degree that he would do all of these things that we just discussed, then really does it matter if someone or something is against us? And that leads to the second question I want to explore today. If God is for us, does it matter who's against us? Now, let's be clear here. Paul is not suggesting here that if God is in fact for you, that there can be nothing or no one working against you. I think we all know better than that, correct? The question he's asking and then systematically answers is, can anyone or anything override or negate our position of God being for us. We've just heard these amazing truths. Can anything override that? If you're a card player, you might think of it as, can anyone trump God? Does anyone but God hold the ace of spades? And so to answer that question, like a, like a skilled attorney, Paul begins to make this case and he does it by, he starts by examining God himself. Look in verse 32. He addresses the first concern of whether God himself could ever change his mind and no longer be for us. Is there anything that we could possibly do that would make God say, well, I was for you. Yeah, but not anymore. Because that would be frightening, right? Look how he addresses this concern. He did not even spare his own son, but he offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Now, to be clear, in case you're wondering, this is not a prosperity gospel verse, so sorry. This, this verse is Paul using a, a greater to lesser comparison. He's saying, if God went to, went to and predestined you to be conformed into his image, and then he endured the cross where he became your sin so that you could become his righteousness, and then if he gave you the gift of faith and he called you so that you would believe and repent, if he did all of that, is there really any chance that he would change his mind and not complete what he started no, of course not. That's the argument. If God did the greater act of becoming flesh and paying the ultimate penalty for your sin so that he could make you his child, how much more will he do the lesser act of finishing what he started and keeping you to the end? That's what Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I'm sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then next Paul goes on to address the one who probably is against us the most. 
And we see that in verse 33 and 34. I mean, there is no doubt that Satan roams the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour, right? Scripture calls him the great accuser because he's always working towards his goal of God not being for us. So Paul is asking here, okay, well, does does Satan hold the trump card? Is there anything that our greatest enemy can do to overrule God being for us? And look how he addresses this argument. Who can bring an an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So Satan had his shot on a hill called Golgotha. But when Jesus triumphantly walked out of his own tomb, he forever defeated the power of sin and death and he forever defeated the power of our great accuser, Satan. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, he hath, per, he hath pronounced them clean and clean they are. He has proclaimed them just, covered with the righteousness of Christ and just they are. Come on, thou accusing devil. Come on, ye who lay a thousand things to our charge. But if our Jesus pronounces our acquittal, who is he that condemns? So let Satan stand in the presence of God and accuse us because we know that we have a Savior who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He is interceding for us. And make no mistake that he who is in us is far, far greater than he who is in the world. Satan cannot trump or nullify God being for you. And then finally in verse 35 and 36, just to erase any remaining doubt of our security that God is for us, Paul goes in, he cleans cleans up any possible loose ends by asking if anything, if anything can separate us from the love of Christ. What about people who are against us? What about those who hate us or persecute us? What about disease or crime or natural disasters? What about ourselves? Can we, by our thoughts or or actions, can we trump God being for us? Is there anything at all that can make God not be for us? And that leads to the spectacular verse that we all love, where to answer that, Paul says emphatically, no, no. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, if God is for me, it doesn't matter who is against me. He wins every time. I love this. We see this beautifully displayed in Psalm 56. I almost use this as my, as my text today, primary text. You see, the context of this psalm is, is you have David running from his, his life from Saul. And he's running away. He's got this whole army that's trying to kill him. And he seeks refuge in the city called Gath. 
But once David gets in Gath, he realizes the people there recognize him and they know who he is and they're against him as well. So he just went from the frying pan into the fire, so much so that he ends up having to pretend that he's insane just to try to escape. So it is in this context where he's just trapped all around. It feels like the whole world that is against him that he writes these words in Psalm 56. Listen carefully. Be gracious to me, God, for a man is trampling me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. My adversaries trample me all day for many arrogantly fight against me. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Well, he says, this is what they can do to me. They twist my words all day long. All their thoughts against me are evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They wait to take my life. Anybody tracking with David here? You feel it? Will they escape in spite of such sin? God, bring down the nations in wrath. And then we read the beautiful words of verse 8 and 9. This is his response in the middle of all that. He says, no, you have recorded my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Hmm. Then my enemies will retreat on the day when I call. Why? Because this I know. God is for me. And God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere humans do to me? Isn't that awesome? If you, by God's gift of faith, have repented of your sins and turned to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God is for you every bit as much as he is for David. And you are untouchable. You can rejoice amid the trials and the sufferings of this world, no matter what they are, because God is for you. And as we read in verse 28, he is indeed doing what? He's working all things for your good. Not some of the things, not most of the things, all the things. The difficulties of life are tools that God uses to strengthen your faith to change you into his image and to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. But what, if our, what if our nation falls our, or our economy crumbles that causes me to lose everything? Because God is for you, you can say like Paul in Philippians, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You don't need to fear death, whether it's by disease, crime, or persecution, because God is for you and those things may kill your body, but they can't touch your soul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
Those who would kill you could only provide you with a, with a speed pass to the glorious future that awaits you on the other side. Amen. I mean, isn't that what we're learning in Hebrews 11 concerning the heroes of the faith? It says, they did not receive the things promised in this life, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. But what? They desired a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is for them, and it mattered not who is against them. But before I close, I do want to deal with one more question I think is important that we address. And that is, is God for everyone? As our culture moves farther and farther away from, from biblical Christianity, it seems that there is a growing sentiment that he is, in fact, for everyone. The only people God might oppose are those who would dare suggest that he doesn't love and celebrate everyone exactly like they are. And what I'm about to say will probably get me thrown in jail one day. <laughs> but if this book is, in fact, the inerrant word of God, then I would contend that it clearly teaches us that God is not for everyone as it relates to his eternal purposes. I mean, we see this in our text today. Look back at verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of everyone. No. What does it say? for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, that would seem to indicate that not everyone loves God and not everyone is called according to his purpose. And therefore, God doesn't work all things for the good of everyone. Look at 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he predestined. And for those he predestined, he, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. For those is an exclusionary phrase. It clearly doesn't say he does these things for everyone. And that means that there are people that he doesn't foreknow or that he didn't predestine to be conformed to his image. And that means that he also doesn't call them, he doesn't justify them, and ultimately he doesn't glorify them. Now, I understand that this kind of talk will get me labeled as a hate monger in today's world. But if I am to stand before you as a minister of the gospel and I don't tell you the truth of the word of God, in my mind, that would be the most unloving and hateful thing I could possibly do. I mean, right before the 11th chapter of Hebrews that Kevin and Lawson are, are so beautifully taking us through, we read these words in chapter 10 starting in verse 26, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed 
And who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So call me what you will, but that just doesn't sound like God is for everyone and that all roads lead to heaven. Why isn't God it for everyone? I don't know. He's God, not me. If you haven't already, go wrestle with Romans 9. We may not understand or like the thought that God is not for everyone, but it doesn't make it less true. God does bestow many common graces on all people. Life itself is a, is a blessing. And all the things in this life that we enjoy, that all of us enjoy, are evidence that God is for all of us to a degree. But to disregard what Scripture says about hell and the wrath of God is naive and foolish. Jesus warned against the terrors of hell more than anyone. So I say all this not to scare you or guilt you, but to, remind, to warn you and remind you what Scripture says, that now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. I mean, you can get angry and refuse to submit to a God who would condemn people to hell as a just payment for their rebellion. But in doing so, you become one of the condemned yourself. Or you can disregard scripture and, and create a, a Mr. Potato Head version of God that fits your liking like so many do. But the fact remains that God created us in his image. We don't get to create him in ours. Or you can heed the warning and you can run to him as your Lord and Savior and be among those whom God is for. That's the choice that each of us must make. My job is just to plead with you to choose the latter. Don't run away from God's wrath. Run towards our great God and Savior who is for those who love and obey him. So as I close, I, <laughs> I know it becomes almost sometimes cliche to quote Charles Spurgeon, but, but man, God gifted this guy to be able to craft words like few have ever been able. So I want to close with these beautiful words of hope from the Prince of Preachers. He stands before Pilate. I think I hear him say, poor sinner, I am for you. I see him carrying the cross upon his bleeding shoulders and every step he takes is to the tune, I am for you. I behold him bleeding upon the tree with outstretched hands and all his wounds and all the drops of blood which flow from his side all say, Christ is for you. Today, as he pleads before the eternal throne, this is the tenor of his plea, I am for you. When he shall come a second time without, without a sin offering unto salvation, the sound of the mighty trumpet which shall herald his advent will ring out, Christ is for you, O ye blood-bought saints. 
And when he shall sit upon the throne of his father and his kingdom shall come, whereof there shall be no end, this shall be the tenor of that kingdom. I am for my people. My church family, if you sit here today and you have put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and are a follower of him, then I hope that today brings great hope to your life and that you can indeed proclaim, just like we heard King David, that though my adversaries trample me, when I am afraid, I will trust in you because this I know, God is for me. Amen. Pray with me. Father, just to utter that phrase just doesn't seem to do it justice. We can can ask the question why a million times over and we can come up with no reason why you would be for us. We have turned against you. We have rebelled. We have chosen our own way and yet you choose to be for us. So God, I pray for those of us here today as we hear these words with that, with that phrase, God is for us, never sit lightly on our, in our minds. God, would it lead us to humility and gratitude. Thank you that we serve a God who is indeed for us. It's in your name we pray, amen.